Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would take uh, these words from this passage of Scripture and make them alive by your Holy Spirit. That, as Mark kind of said um, earlier, that our, our hearts would be really soft. The uh, skin would be thin so that you could, by your presence, kind of touch and move. And we would feel the impulse of that and move in that area, in that direction. Um, whatever you want to do, however you want to move, we open our hearts to you now. And I open my heart that you might speak in Christ's name. Amen. So let me ask you a question as we are kind of in this passage of Scripture. What's your filter? What's the filter that you wear that, that causes you to see life? What do you see as you look out at the landscape of your life? A lot of times we wear glasses or shades or whatever that, that actually cause us to see things that um, are in line with that filter. For instance, as you're driving down the road, do you see traffic and construction and potholes? Depending on the road, right? Uh, as you uh, look out your windshield, do you see things that are smudged, streaked, and stained? Or as you're driving at night and staring out the window and the road seems really hard to see, the white lines seem rather gray, and you kind of are looking at the approaching lights and they're rather dim, and you're wondering whether your light is working right, and like me, I go out and find out it's really that the lights are just dirty. And what is it that you see life with? And I, I really want to ask this in a, in, in, a, in a sense in this idea, because no matter how much good there may be, and I'm one who falls so often in this area, you can find bad if you look for it. The Bible says to the pure, all things are pure. And what I want us to note, too, is this is not just a superficial thing, such as, well, you know, do I wear some glasses that color things? The Bible really does talk about the heart. What's the heart like? What's going on in the heart? How is the heart responding? And, too, what I want to talk about is, is not just some superficial things that are going on, but how is your heart responding to the work of God, the presence of God, the move of God in your life? Do you see when God begins to move? God might be talking through someone that is, he's trying to share some truth with you, or he may be moving in your circumstances to build something in your character. He might be moving in different ways. And how do you, by your heart, what's it like? What do you do? How do you see things? How do you respond to God? See, Jesus came that we would have life and have it in fullness and abundance. And so I ask in a sense, as I've asked myself this, what might keep you from seeing that fullness and walking in that fullness? Matthew 10 is, is very interesting. If you go from chapters 1 through 10, and if you were to read it, you would see it's a constant uh, work on the part of the gospel writer to help people see that Jesus is who he said he is, who the prophets said he would be. That's why he quotes the prophets. He, he's saying, here is Jesus. And then when we get to these chapters that we're looking at now, chapters 11 through 13, he moves to another place where he says, not, not only here is Jesus, but what is your response to this Jesus? What's the filter that you have that allows for you to either see or not see this move or presence or work of God around you? In chapter, one, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, which we talked about last week, is, is this whole idea of, of John the Baptist going through this time where he's in prison, he's in the pits, and he's going through this sense of honest doubt. 
And then in Matthew 11, verses 7 through 19, we see there's another response that Jesus is going to deal with. He's going to deal with the response of the the ones who stand back and, and they look at things and they complain and they criticize and they're never satisfied. And as we go on next week, verses 20 through 24, the response is, and I'm going to ask you, not now, but at some point, if you want this week, read verses 20 through 24 and, and maybe figure out for yourself, what is the response that's going on here? There's another response that Jesus actually identifies in verses 20 through 24. But this week, 7 through 19, is this whole idea of how do we respond. And what I find is interesting that you study the life of Jesus. And and depending upon your filter, your heart, or depending upon your response to God and his work and his move, you'll learn that as you respond, if you open up, if you you actually begin to respond to how he is working in in those ways in your life, where you move into what he's calling you to move into, you'll begin to... Love like God, you will begin to actually live like God. You will actually begin to experience the things that God intends. But it calls for a response. It's like last night we were with some friends and we had dinner and afterwards the person said, can I pray for you? Um, for tomorrow in the services and I thought wow that was just you know a gift right at the end before we we're gonna leave and so it's yes and everyone prayed my wife prayed she prayed about um, walking in joy and then in the car ride home I kind of asked her I said what, what what are you thinking and she said well, I just was thinking about when we were praying I just got this picture of, of this idea that you walk in joy which means that you actually have to move your leg you have to actually exercise your will you actually have to respond to begin to experience and so that you can move into it in joy And as I listened to that, it did speak to my heart. I think that's what Jesus seems to be talking about here. When he says, follow me, he says, learn from me, he says, walk with me. He often will bring before us something and then he's asking us to exercise that muscle of our will to respond to him. So let's look at these verses. If you'll note, first of all, what I want to share with you is how, how Jesus handles John's question again. I, we're going to kind of just, you have to cover this here because as we go into verses 7 through 10, you find that as the disciples of John are leaving, Jesus needs to address John's question again. Not this time to the disciples, but this time he does to those who are standing around him. Some of them who are probably in a place of really wondering, honestly questioning, and then some who are there as we'll see later, who are just what you call the constant critics. They actually have a critical spirit. And so as they're leaving, I find it interesting that John, Jesus doesn't cast John as a critic, but looks at him as an honest questioner. He knew John. He knew his heart. He knew that John was in the pits. He knew that there was a time of transition that was going on right here from one age to the next where God was doing something new. And he doesn't go after John, he doesn't shame John, he doesn't attack John, he doesn't rescue John. But to the crowd of onlookers, Jesus turns without berating him and he begins to do something different, which I think is a a very important thing to do when a person is in this place where they're they're struggling to try and understand how God is working, how he's moving and and what he's doing in your life. And when it's an honest, true struggle, there's a sense that he he, he affirms their sense of, of the fact that they are honestly grasping hold of because what they want is more of what God has. And it's interesting here, he calls out John's greatness. Look at verses 7 through 10. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I will tell you. And more than a prophet. 
This is the one to whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Who's John the Baptist? He's basically saying instead of uh, in any way coming down on him and berating him, he actually raises his 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 sense of 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 who he is before the people and says, this man is a great man. He wasn't wishy-washy. He wasn't like the reed that would blow in the wind, according to the opinion of a person. He wasn't he wasn't one who was fickle. He wasn't one who wavered. He was a very solid, strong. And when he stood out there and gave that message and he called people to repent, he did it even in the face of a lot of opposition. And he wasn't even some huckster in it for self-gain. He wasn't, I mean, in a sense, he's almost saying no one dresses the way John does by choice. He wasn't wearing the fine clothes of one who would live in the palace. Yet John is in the palace right now, but he's not dressed up in some fine clothes and enjoying himself. He's in the prison. He's in the pits. John was one of these guys that I would almost consider, if you look at him, he's like one of these rugged outdoorsmen. He was tough. And he believed in what he stood for, and he stood for it no matter what. So who did you go out to see? He says, you saw a prophet. And not just some ordinary prophet. You saw someone who is far more than a prophet. And so Jesus, in a sense, is, is lifting up John the Baptist, which is an interesting thing. John the Baptist, who is in this place of, of, of despair, a bit discouraged, obviously, and in this time of questioning, and, and John in this time of transition, as God is moving in a new way and he's coming through Jesus to reconcile the world to himself, John is trying to figure this thing out and he's trying to, to understand it. And as a result of it, he's, he's trying to process it. And Jesus points him back to the word and, and tells him to look at what God has to say, to really pray with it and, and to move more into it. Not to, not to find your resting place in doubt, but to, to move through it. But what I find is interesting is that he treats him differently than a critic. There is a big difference between a person trying to struggle to understand how God is working and moving than a person who has a critical spirit. There's a difference between a person of true faith whose faith is being purified through a process of what I call God-initiated change. And you may be going through that in your own life. You may not be able to understand what's going on, why God is, is his move circumstances the way he has, why God isn't answering the prayer the way that you thought God would, would come to you, that Jesus isn't the kind of Jesus you wanted him to be, and you're going through this process. And Jesus lifts up his greatness as a prophet. In Ezra's day, God is doing a new thing. He was actually rebuilding the temple. He was working in a way that he was, he was helping people understand that God is holy and he dwells in his temple, but yet he was preparing people for a day when Jesus would come and that God would dwell in the house of this person and eventually Jesus would dwell in the houses of all persons as his community of people who trust and walk with him and have the Spirit of God living and moving through him. And so this whole process of revelation was coming through time and as it was coming through time, it caused people to go into a place where they would begin to be confused. How are you working, God? Because my lenses, my filter saw it this way, but you seem to be doing this. So that in Ezra, they're building the temple. And here are the people of Ezra's day. He's coming back and there's people excited. They're entering once again from being in this land of captivity and, 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 and imprisoned away and apart from God. 
They, some of the older people, had seen the temple destroyed. They're coming back into the land. They're teaching. He's, Ezra's teaching them about God and how he wants to live in their heart. And he's talking about the law of God in their heart and about following it. And the people are building the temple, this new house for God. And as they're building it, those who are older are looking and they're thinking to themselves, I remember what the temple once was. Solomon's temple was so glorious. And they're looking at this temple and it's nothing like it was. But those of the new generation are excited because they're a part of God's continuing revelation. And for them, this is really exciting. They didn't even see the old temple. Many of them were born in captivity. Now they're there, they're building it. And Ezra says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, Lord, in verse 11, he says, with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But listen to this. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the formal former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid others shouted for joy and no one could distinguish the sounds of shouts of joy from sounds of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard from quite a ways away there's this mixture of weeping and this mixture of of joy and praise because God was doing something new and, and there was this transition taking place. And for those, it was a painful transition. And as they wept and they, and they went through this place because all that God was doing through them was preparing this new generation for what God was going to do in and through them. And there was this sense of this coming together. And it was kind of a weird cacophony of, of praise and, and weeping. Because there's always a struggle. There's always a sense of loss, of confusion, of questioning when God begins to initiate a new kind of work in your life. But what I find is interesting in this word of God is that Jesus doesn't view John as a critic. John experiences confusion. He sat discouraged and disillusioned in Herod's prison. Jesus understood. And he didn't run off, though, to rescue John. He didn't change his plans. He didn't do it the way that John necessarily wanted. But Jesus valued all that John had done to bring God's move to this point. And he said to all the people, here is a great man. And I was going through this message. And I struggled all week. And it was yesterday morning. I'm praying through this. And this didn't come clear to me until yesterday. I just wanted to stop and say to this congregation, as I said to the first congregation, we have been in this process of change and transition and God is doing things. And it's been difficult. It's been difficult as we're seeking to bring the generations together. And there is a sense that one of the generations wails and the other one, there's some excitement and joy as the two come together. And I just want to say to those of you who have gone through the confusion and the difficulty and the pain I just want you to know how greatly valued you are. And as you struggled, I think at times, and it, it, I don't think we, it's meant to be, but I think it comes off that way because of, of the nature of who we are as people. We can be judgmental and people can hear things with shame. And what happens in the interaction is people feel devalued. And, and, and I have to tell you, I haven't said it enough, but I want to say to, to every person who has been a part of this church for years, how great you are. I mean that from my heart. I thank God for you. For how God has used you to bring us to even this point. As we still struggle together and we still walk together. But my prayer is that we'll be a community that does that in health. And that we as leaders will distinguish what I call a critic 
who has become a habitual complainer and criticizer versus a someone who's struggling and, and they're confused and they're feeling they're in the pits of despair because they don't understand and, and things are different. There's a sense of loss and they come with honest questions. You need to bring those. It is right. It is a place where it needs to be safe to do that. And I just say to you, if I've, I've offended or elders or others, this is a place where we want God to work, where we will be people who are humble and, and honest and willing to work through things. And that's our desire. And so I look at this and I, I just was touched in my heart. How, how God has the ability. Now, I don't have the ability. God only knows your heart. God only knows my heart. God knows if I am a person who is standing on the sidelines and complaining outside criticizing or a person who is just honestly going through it. And you know what? I just say... As we go through the rest of this message, don't move to a place of shame and act as if, if these words might land on you. Only listen and let the Holy Spirit work in your heart. Okay, because what is interesting is that Jesus offers this very honest critique and, and values the people, especially John the Baptist as he moves forward. Jesus also is very clear that there are some that may not be confused or may be questioning, but they, they really are just plain outright critical spirits. And this is, this is old and young. This is anybody. As they stood around Jesus, there were some that were just actual critical spirits. And after upholding John, Jesus deals head on with the criticism of those Pharisees and Sadducees and others who were constantly looking at the move of God that was happening through Jesus. And as a result of their losing their sense of power, they were upset because they didn't like how God was coming to the disenfranchised, the unempowered, the ones who really were in need of God. They were losing this place and they stood back and they criticized. So Jesus begins very openly and honestly. And he deals with their criticism before it even starts. You know, an ounce of prevention is worth a what? Pound of something. Cure. Jesus deals with the potential criticism before the damage even begins. Because he's no fool. He's as bright as any CEO, as, as brilliant as any academician from Harvard. Here's the scene. John's disciples have just said to Jesus, hey, John's going through questions, things aren't as we thought it would be. John's wondering, are you really the one as he made some kind of mistake? Think about it. John is wondering. He's looking at what you're doing. And it's not what he, or even we, for that matter, expected you to be doing. Where's the fire? Where's the army? Where's the revolution? And you can see the people who are standing on the outside criticizing, they're going, ha. Now we get it. Even John, he's even questioning this Jesus guy. This whole con is up now. And they begin to murmur among themselves. And the rumor could easily spread. Yep, these guys, both John and Jesus, who were kind of connected to each other, a bunch of con men, and they start to spread it. And Jesus stops the rumor. And he says, you know, you guys, let's talk about it for a second. John's this incredibly great prophet. And he goes on and he deals with the doubt that could easily have led to criticism and justified their critical response that they wanted to have. So he calls the crowd together. Look at verse 7. And John, as the disciples were leaving, Jesus begins to speak to the crowd. Come on together. I'm going to nip this in the bud. Think about it, those of you who are quick to distrust or want to criticize. Think about it. What other Old Testament prophet do you know was predicted to come? Where else do you see in Scripture a reference to one who would actually prepare the way for the greatest prophet that was 
always being talked about from Genesis on. And so Jesus quotes Malachi 3.1, the very last of the prophets. And Matthew records this, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way for you. God said one like Elijah would come and he has come and he has done what he said that he would do. John had one job to do, to introduce the Messiah. And guess what? He did that job. And Jesus handled that criticism openly and honestly. He basically said, John's task is done. It's complete. He did what he was asked to do. And then God points once and Jesus points once again to God's word. He doesn't make excuses for John, doesn't get defensive, but he just does what he does so well. After he, he openly and honestly deals with their potential criticism, he now moves into what I call this place of just, true, just freely, without using force, in a very healthy way, he just shares the truth. And if you read through the Gospels again and again, here's how you see Jesus talk. Jesus is not going, you should do this, etc., things such as that. He basically says, here's reality, do you want to live in it or not? It's the most healthy way to deal with people who have been given wills by God. He basically says, here's truth, here's reality, you can either live in it or not. It's like talking to a guy. You can, you can stand on the top of a building that is ten stories high and jump off, and if you do it, there's a really good chance you're going to get hurt. That's just reality. It's your choice. So verses 11 through 15, here's the truth, basically. Jesus says, you decide. I love how he handles the critic. Jesus doesn't force them to accept the truth. He just presents it. I tell you the truth. Look at this. In verse 11. And then he shares a bunch of stuff and then he ends it again in verse 15. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here's the truth. Process it. You're adults. You have a mind. You have a will. You have emotions. You have all the things that have been given to you by God to make a really good decision about the reality in front of you. Here's the reality. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And I can share with you as we go through these verses, commentators, if you look at like the book of Matthew, when they come to these verses, um, I'm sure editors keep it shorter than they would like it to be. But you could go on for pages and pages because these next few verses are not real easy to understand. There's lots of different translations or understandings of it. But I think it's really pretty simple. And I'm just going to give you my simple understanding. You can go into commentators and find out more if you want. But when he says from the days, um, for this idea that he was the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist, what he is making the point is that every prophet came speaking forth the truth of reality, speaking to the fact that they were pointing to some greater reality that would come that would reveal the fullness of God, both in grace and truth. And this person would come as the Messiah and his name would be Jesus and all kinds of other names in scripture form. John was the last one pointing to him, but John didn't just point to him. He actually touched him. He baptized him. Now, everyone after that, we're not pointing to him in the future of something that could happen. He's saying that we're looking back at something that has happened and its fullness is there. And we can use our hearts and minds and study history and all the other things needed to do and understand that there may never be proof. But we have all the evidence we want to put in place so that it leads to a point where you're not jumping into some abyss, but you're actually jumping out to something that is true and real. And we are greater than they are because we're pointing to someone and to this reality that has actually occurred. That makes sense? So as he goes on, he then goes on and he makes a very interesting statement again. From the days of John the Baptist until now, here's another one that commentators go all over on this. The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. Well, what? 
and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept that he's the Elijah who was to come. Got the ears to hear. Listen. And let me just share with you. What Jesus comes to us in is not in what I call just mere intellectual truth. He comes to us with revelation, which requires a spirit to be alive to God. As Paul writes, this is what we speak, not in words taught by us by human words, but by words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truth in spiritual words. That's why Jesus says, here I tell you the truth. And if you have ears to hear, everyone has a physical ear. You have a mental mind. You can use these things and you're to use them. But the reality is that our spirit Here's revelation from God. And I want to tell you, if you're not walking in that, if you're just walking in a head knowledge relationship with God, if you're not walking in a real, alive, open-hearted spirit before God, you won't hear the Spirit and you will not know the realities of the kingdom because it's through the ears of the Spirit that hear that Jesus reveals. So these words are more than just intellectual things. And so Jesus so respectfully expresses the heart of God who's always a gentleman, Never asking us to forsake our honest questions on the whim of faith. Not asking anyone to give up their intellect and just to leap. But challenges us to use our head and our heart. Asking that God would, through his spirit, open our spirit to hear. And so he points to this and he makes these words. And what I think is interesting is Jesus, as I said, doesn't use force. He does it very in a very healthy way. He just hears reality. But he talks about force in verse 12. That verse that we read just a minute ago. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. What does he mean? I think, again, it's really simple. The coming of, of God's kingdom, ushered in by the Messiah, announced by John the Baptist, has been advancing since the beginning till now with force. Nothing will stop it and stand against it. The one thing God will do is his will. Think about that. God will, with force, move forward his will. So I want to share with you, if you're in a place where you're saying, God, I really want your will in my life, and I really want to be open to you doing that, I can tell you, he will do it. You may be wondering and saying, God, why isn't this happening when it should be? And I've had this prayer. You know what? Here's the one truth. God's will will forcefully advance. And if your heart is open to it and you are a participant with it, he will move in your life and he will bring you to exactly what he wants. And beyond that, he tells us this, that no man, no spiritual power, whether evil or good, can stand against the will and the force of God. So throughout history, you see God moving, even when people are standing against it and opposing it. Even when Herod puts John the Baptist in prison, is what he's basically saying. God's will moves forward and will continue to move forward. You need to know in your life that God's will will be done. There is nothing that can stop it. What God wants for you will happen as you walk with him. And so he says this in a sense, it's been moving forward from that day up till now. But he continues. And again, this idea of forcefulness is intriguing. The second word for force that he uses is one that has very negative connotations. There's a few places in scripture it's used positively, but almost always it means a violent and rapacious kind of force. So Jesus said, in my thoughts and understanding of this, 
God is with force, bringing his rule on the earth, and there are people who are out there who are in desperate need and hunger for God and with almost a sense of violent force are seeking to enter in. There are people forcefully, almost violently making their way into God's rule. There are people not standing back and criticizing, like some might be here in this, is, is, is Jesus' is teaching, but there are people so desperate that they'll do anything to get in. So Matthew 8 and 9 that we read not long ago, here's a leper who stands out and he begs for Jesus to heal. He does that which wasn't even acceptable in his culture. He's willing to force himself into the presence of God. A pagan soldier who knows he doesn't deserve to come for help sends his own servants to Jesus and asks Jesus to do something so that he can get part of the kingdom of God. Throngs of people stand outside Peter's house. They are waiting for the sun to set so that this Jesus could actually come out and, and, and touch them with the kingdom of God. Blind men chase after Jesus, and the disciples even tell him, tell him to go. But they are so insistent that they actually enter into the house where Jesus is going in order to get him. Two guys, and four guys, in fact, take a, a guy who's paralyzed, push through a crowd, get on top of a house, pull apart the house, and lower a guy down. If that isn't violence. And he's basically saying people are forcing themselves onto Jesus through calling and shouting and interrupting and pleading and touching and grabbing hold of even the hem of his garment in hopes of entering the kingdom of God. And in a very clever and sly way, Jesus explains exactly who John the Baptizer is, stresses his greatness, while at the same time using the scripture so that they see, in a sense, here I am, the one you're looking for standing right before you. Isn't it interesting? Without being explicit, Jesus implicitly says, hey guys, I'm the one the Old Testament's pointed to, that John pointed to, that the scripture said would be coming in and before you. And there are people who are so hungry, they want God so much that they are doing anything they can to get a touch of it. And so then Jesus closes with this. He's aware that some, even after they hear this, will choose to stay in the place of being a constant critic. They won't have that desire to do anything they can. They won't humble themselves. They won't set aside whatever it is needed in order to enter. They won't admit their sin and, and, and honestly come before God and say that my pride has kept you away. My offenses have hurt you and hurt others. They won't do that. They're so grasping on to their own sense of righteousness, their own sense of control, all that they can. They won't let that go. So that selfishness keeps them apart from not just God, but from other people. And they stand back and look at anyone who seems to move in this, and they see the move of God in the person's life and, and the power and presence of God in a situation. They stand back and they complain, or they stand on the outside and criticize. So that's what Jesus goes on to say here. There are many who, when they hear and they see the work of God, will never be satisfied. They'll never be content. They'll never move from criticism to commitment. So Jesus says, this generation prepared better than any generation is like this. Look at verse, if you would, 16. To what can I compare this generation? It's a very typical technique that a rabbi would use. You can look in, 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 in all the Jewish collections of writing called the Midrash. When, they, when a rabbi wanted to use a parable or a story or an illustration, they would often begin it by saying, what can I compare this generation like? So Jesus, they know what's going on here. Jesus is about to make an illustration. He basically says as he looks at him, let me compare you to this story. They're like children sitting in the marketplaces calling out to others. 
We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. And you kind of go, well, what, are you, what are you meaning here, Jesus? They all knew what he meant right here. He's saying you are like spoiled children playing in the open market. You see, in every city throughout the Middle East, they had these open markets. It would be like going to the Ridgedale Mall. You have, you know, all these stores and you'd walk around and, you know, most of you keep your kids with you because today we live in a culture where you don't let your kids kind of play in the center area. But in that day, they would have these little kiosks all over the place in this marketplace. And, 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 and that was the public square. And people would come together and adults would see each other and they would talk and converse and they'd have a great time. And the kids would gather there and they would play together. And he says, it's like, like these kids. And in the game they would play, they had two games. There was one that was called wedding and one that was called funeral. That's, that's where you get these words. We played the flute for you, you didn't dance. We sang the dirge, you did not mourn. They would gather together and some kids would be playing wedding. And they would call out to Johnny and Susie and Billy and whoever else is out there, and probably Justin and what are the names now. Anyway, and so they, they'd call them and they said, come play with us. And, and they said, we're going to play wedding. And, and they would look at them and say, nah, nah, we don't want to. That's just a little too... That's too joyful, and you've got to dance, and I might have to touch a girl, and I'll get cooties, you know, that kind of thing. But the kids really wanted them to play. They wanted them to join the fun. They wanted them to enter into the experience, and so they call out again, okay, we won't play wedding. Maybe wedding's a little too girly for you, whatever it might be. We're going to play funeral. And funeral is something, both these things were, the, were things that they would copy. Like when I was a kid, it's not politically correct to do today, but we used to play like cowboys and Indians. It's that kind of thing. So, so, so let's play funeral. And so in that day in a funeral, you would mourn and you would have people as they would, they would walk along very somber and they would carry the body and there would be people saying, well, let me be one of the guys who carries the body and others doing this. And they would call them and say, how about playing with us funeral? And they would go, no, no, I don't want to play that game either. I didn't want to be a part of that game. That's no fun. I mean, it's just so depressing and you, you got to wail really loud and my voice kind of hurts, you know, on and on, whatever it is. And there were two common games. It was the glad game or the sad game. And these kids were spoiled sports who said, you know, I'll just complain. I'll sit on the outside. I'll just criticize what you're doing out there. And without missing a beat, Jesus applies this to these critics. Those who knew in their heart that God was speaking to him. Look at verse 18. For John neither came eating or drinking. And they said he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of the tax collectors and sinners. John's a madman and he dresses like a crazy guy. He's got to have a demon. Jesus is a lush. He just goes from party to party. He's a drinking fool. And God through both of them is saying, I want you to join. I, my spirit is calling you to do this, to move into this. And they're going, ah, not for me. And both their lifestyles are, are critically looked at. Rather than seeing John as austere and an ascetic, rebuking people for their indulgence or realizing here is Jesus coming into the flow of life, calling people to grace and to move into the presence of God. In essence, Jesus says, God has come to you in a sad way and in a glad way, and you reject them both. Nothing satisfies you you only stand back and complain you only stand on the outside and criticize and you never join in Jesus is basically saying you've made it clear if we can't play the game our way we won't play it at all we'd rather stand on the outside 
And so Jesus concludes with a proverb, a well-known proverb, but wisdom is proved right by our actions. Luke basically uses these words, wisdom is proved right by her children. I think Matthew uses the words action because they refer back to verse 2 of chapter 11 when Matthew records, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing or his actions, he was confused and he honestly doubted. God vindicated by his wisdom as he comes to the critic in every way and finds that no way will satisfy their heart. Here is the grace and love of God. He will come to every heart in whatever way he can to say, join me. The ability to walk, to exercise, to move into it. Because God won't ever force anyone. Is up to each and every one of us. And I don't know what that means for you. It could mean that God's calling you to deal with a relationship that you know is out of sorts. And he's been trying to move you into that. It could be that God has been dealing with you to, 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 to work on something within your heart and your character that isn't allowing his fullness. And, and he's saying, I want you to walk in that. It could be that Jesus is saying, you know what? There's some things in your life that I've I got to get hold of. You just need to confess this to someone else. Let someone else in. I don't know what it is. But I do know this. God is so gracious. He will come to us in whatever way he can. And we have the ability to respond to his movement. And God is vindicated by his wisdom in every action. So let me just ask a couple questions and I'll conclude. It's really important when we read something like this. I have been just wrestling in my heart. Are you facing a person with honest questions who needs to be lifted up and understood? Or are you facing a person who has a critical spirit? Could you be questioning like John, the very work that God right now is seeking to accomplish because you're confused like the time of Ezra and, and you just, it's hard, it's difficult. What is God doing? How is God at work? What's the filter even more than that? What's your heart? Let's pray. Father, it is our desire to be a family, a congregation, a people, a community that is completely honest, full of integrity, humble, willing. And yet, God, I know it doesn't take more than a day for my heart to be moved to a place where it could get stuck, where it gets off course. I think it doesn't take a week for a lot of us to come to a place where we have a filter that's causing us to see things in ways that are not the way that you want us to. So God, again, we come before you and we say, create in us, create in me a heart that is clean and pure, that I might see and say yes to every move and prompting that your spirit brings to me. Amen. Amen.